0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of CKX Questions, produced in partnership with the Circle in Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples in Canada. As the Circle prepares to host its biannual All My Relations gathering virtually later this spring, we are pleased to share with you a series of conversations that took place at and after All My Relations 2019. The episode opens with reflections from the Circle's CEO, Chris Archie, that set the stage for a conversation between Tim Fox and Sarah Lyons, who speak to their time serving as co-chairs of the Circle's Governing Circle. So I'm here with Chris Archie, Executive Director of the Circle. And perhaps a good place to start would be, what is the All My Relations gathering? What's the intention and spirit behind it? And what brought this amazing group of folks together?
1: Great. Well... AMR stands for All My Relations. In lots of places, All My Relations is about this concept of being in relationship with one another. And the Circle on Philanthropy, a few years ago, started a a biannual conference. So every two years they have a gathering and it's called All My Relations. The All My Relations that we did this past summer or in June of 2019, we hosted it at the Gray Eagle Resort which is located on the Satina First Nation in Treaty 7, just outside of Calgary in Alberta. And its focus was really to provide participants with an experience for what it could mean if we were doing our thinking and our doing differently. And by doing differently, it was really, can we invite people to be in a relationship with one another framed around the Four Seasons? of spring, summer, winter, and fall. And if we did that, could we help people have an experience that recognize that when we take the time to embed indigenous worldviews into our practices of philanthropy or community building or relationship building, that we could have a transformed sector.
0: I feel that vision and intention that was held in the design process really powerfully came through in the course of of our time together at The Gathering. And I was wondering if you could maybe just share a little bit about um, how how that time together was held and and structured and a little bit about the flow. Because I feel like that really contributed uh, to the magic of, of those days together.
1: Yeah. The All My Relations structure this year was really focused on an exploration. We wanted to take people on a journey through the seasons. And so the format was essentially two days together and it was broken into four kind of chunks of time, and each quadrant of time was focused on a particular season. And so being in a rhythm was really important to us, inviting people into an understanding of like the flow of what comes next. It gives people the spaciousness to sink into what they're feeling and what they're noticing. It provides folks with enough structure, or we hoped, to provide folks with enough structure that they would be willing to keep coming along with us into the next season. What I know about seasons is that we, most folks who are living here in Canada have a sense of like what happens in spring and what happens in fall. And so, you know, having that be a major framework for our work meant that folks didn't have to belabor their brains too hard to understand what we were talking about. And we gave enough space for them to make sense for what each season meant. Mm-hmm. The, the other pieces that, that were important were to move folks from a conference experience where you have, there's a million things you wanna do, you never get to all the sessions you wanna get to, that at the end of it all, you feel sick and or tired, and um, and you just want to go home and you need a vacation from the conference. Um, we didn't want that experience. Not only did we want our tiny team, like just Shereen and I, to walk out of the other side of the All My Relations gathering and feel well, we also wanted the participants to feel well and to feel nourished and connected and to feel like they were leaving with specific tools that they could apply to their work. And so that was part of the, the design of how we did The work together. We focus first on spring and for us at the Circle, spring is a time for connecting and emergence. It's a time for planting new seeds and it's also a time for starting to notice where there are new shoots coming up and where buds are beginning to blossom and bloom. And so what does that mean in the context of the work that we do? It means paying attention to the sparks of new connection and opportunities for partnerships. It means amplifying and making visible the emergence or the tr- or the new trends that are happening in the philanthropic sector. While also knowing that there that that to be in that kind of springtime um, feeling, you need to have a bit of faith that the seeds that you plant with the right amount of like sunlight and watering and with the right soil can lead to beautiful things and we don't always know what is going to flourish but we require some faith to do that work and so we try to set up that first morning together with an emphasis on that energy summer was in the afternoon of day one and summer for us is really about engagement it's about relationships it's in my territory it's the time when you start to pick berries And picking berries is a time for being out on the land. It's for sharing stories with family. And one of the things I talked about was just how the the sweetness of berries is such a gift, right? And so if someone goes out and they find huckleberries, for example, and they come back and they share those huckleberries with you, it's such a treat. And um, so we really wanted to focus summertime to the acknowledgement and the celebration of where partnerships between indigenous organizations and philanthropic organizations were turning into these sweet fruits right so it's really like where are some really amazing things happening what does that look like why why did that come to be and what could others learn and so there was this connection about how you know if you're going to be in relationship with folks through a period of summer you can tell the depth of your relationship if they invite you to their secret berry patch, right? And for others, if, if you really want to get there and they don't invite you, how important it is that you honor and acknowledge that. One of the reflections I had after AMR was just that in some ways, the work that we are doing in our communities with, with Indigenous-led organizations, it is precious work. And being in that period of engagement, in relationship building, Is one that that is really important and when a funder comes along or a new person comes along and it's like hey like can I come to your community or like can I come to your berry patch you know folks can be a little bit like cautious Mm -hmm. right because like what are you gonna do at at my berry patch like do you know how to behave out there or you know do you know that there there are some bears we're in their territory Um, are you gonna pick too much are you going to take them away and, like, sell them? Like, you know, these are metaphors for the ways in which um, extraction happens in our communities, right? And how harmful that is and why there's a lot of caution for making space for outsiders or for funders um, to enter into Indigenous community spaces. So, yeah, summer was really about, like, where, there, where there's beautiful things happening and how can we learn from and ampl- amplify that. Fall was the morning of day two, and fall for us at the circle is really about harvest, right? And so in some spaces, the concept of harvest is about the practice of extraction from the land. We try really hard to be clear that that's not what we're doing, or that's not our intention uh, when we use this language. But really, it's an acknowledgement that being in relationship gives you an opportunity for a harvest and in our specific context we're thinking about policies and practices and the learning that comes from doing good work together kind of what is it that you can take away and so really fall is about understanding the research and data that exists and making sense of it alongside others, it's about mobilizing the knowledge that we have the knowledge that exists in in community for the purpose of benefiting the community and so for us our community is both indigenous charitable organizations and the um, philanthropic sector and that was a fun time because we did some some playful things in that time we had a data date where the circle kind of opened up a bunch of bags of sticky notes connected to previous gatherings we had and said, like, help us make sense of this. Help us identify the patterns that exist here and help us to tell a story about the wisdom that exists in communities as it relates in this instance specifically to decolonizing wealth. But it was also about understanding that harvest is, in, in the traditional sense, if you're out in the fields or if you're gathering from the bush, you don't always use everything you harvest the moment that you have it, right? So when my brother gets a deer, you know, that deer gets used in a, in so many different ways and that sometimes, like, for example, the meat is used really quickly, but the hide is something that needs to be prepared over a long period of time. That perhaps the creation of antlers with the hooves happened in the right ceremonial time. That some of the meat might be kept and jarred, it might be frozen, it might be ground up, it might be smoked and turned into jerky. That there's lots of ways to do that and you have to be in enough relationship to both land and community and to what's coming in down the road to make best use of that harvest. And so it's been fun to think about the ways in which the harvest from that gathering was, there was a multiplicity of it, right? There were things that we were learning that were directly applicable to the work that that was happening in, in real time, between people. And then, you know, months later, there are these, like, stories of how people are still learning from and reflecting upon what they experienced at AMR or what they learned or the relationship they built with someone and how that's playing out now all these months later has been really beautiful. In winter, winter uh, again, winter for us is a time for contemplation and ceremony, but it's also a time when the earth looks like it's sleeping, right? In lots of places, the snow makes things look like nothing's happening, but if you pay attention you will recognize that actually lots is happening, right? Like there's there's all kinds of different tracks in the snow that underneath the snow, there is growth and there's decay and there's death and there's composting happening. And kind of being undercover and dampened both in sound and in and in, in the quality of what it is that you're seeing becomes really important when we need to do the work of integration. And organizationally, Winter is a time for making sure that the foundation or the, s- the infrastructure for the work that's going to come is built, right? So how do, you, how do we prepare ourselves and the ground for the labor that needs to come in order to really honor what's come before and then to prepare for what comes after? So that format was, um, was unique for us. It seemed to really have an impact on people that there was a pace and a rhythm that was both repetitive while also being kind of free enough for people to know like what was coming. Folks definitely still wanted to go to all the different workshops, but there wasn't a sense of overwhelm that typically accompanies gatherings or, or conferences. Folks felt like they had the chance to slow down and to sit with people and get to know them and have an experience of of real human connection and um, storytelling and sharing food and laughter. We did a lot of intentional thinking about what that space could look like and how we wanted people to walk away feeling. And I think we did a good job of that, of people walking away going like, wow, that was really different, and I feel good, and the things that I heard or learned are applicable to my work and will be helpful.
0: For me, there was, I think, both in terms of the thought and care that went into that flow, but then also the folks in the room felt Mm -hmm. like a really special group of humans as well. Um, Can you speak a little bit to who was in the room? Um, and maybe just a little bit as well, just around kind of the model of, of the circle as well in terms of how, how those folks were brought together.
1: One of the reasons that that gathering felt so different for me was that previous to the gathering starting, I was invited to co-convene alongside um, the organization called IFIT, which is the International Funders for Indigenous Peoples. And IFIP is a global member organization based out of the States. And uh, I'd met them a few years ago, a couple years ago, uh, attended their gathering in Santa Fe last fall and connected with Lourdes Inga, who's the executive director there. And we co-hosted the second gathering of indigenous philanthropic organizations. And so we spent two days together in a group of about 20 or 30 folks who lead Indigenous-led philanthropic organizations. And we were in these beautiful conversations related to... Like, what does Indigenous-led philanthropy mean? Understanding the ways that we wanted to build connection and relationship, recognizing as well the wisdom that Indigenous philanthropic practice and behavior and grant-making could have on the settler-created philanthropic sector it was really alive and present. Um, but there was, at the end of this the, the day, a really clear desire for just how beautiful it is when Indigenous people Get together in the same room for the purpose of sharing stories and talking and learning and building relationships. So um, there's lots of laughter and lots of aha moments and, and also lots of celebration for the good work that's already happening that, that you know when you think about philanthropy, just my air quotes, you don't think about indigenous people predominantly i mean i do and you do but generally when you when you hear the word philanthropy for most folks they're thinking about old white rich Mm. people and what i know to be true is that indigenous communities are filled with both actions of deep individual and collective philanthropic behavior and have been since the beginning of time and in fact the reason that the Indigenous communities continue to, to be alive is because of our adaptation and our generosity. So it was just beautiful to spend time together with folks from all around the globe um, in that space. And so some of the folks, back to your question, some of the folks from that gathering stayed on with us mm-hmm. and attended the rest of the All My Relations gathering. So it was really beautiful to have their presence and their wisdom in the space with us. Our invitations for the gathering went out pretty far and wide. But what I really enjoyed and what I noticed is that there was a range of folks from the settler created philanthropic sector who were there. So, folks who were like, you know, on the front line, whether as program officers or grant managers from various organizations, from community foundations to private family foundations and corporate foundations. There were CEOs present, there were board members of some of our member organizations present, there were indigenous um, leaders who are either leading and are working in senior management in charitable organizations and in philanthropy who were in that space. And um, I felt like the diversity of both experience to the philanthropic sector, both the indigenous philanthropic behaviors and the settler-created philanthropic behaviors were really well matched. We try often in every gathering the circle does to decenter whiteness, right? And so we intentionally create spaces and host in a way that prioritizes the comfort and well-being of indigenous and racialized folks as a priority over the comfort of white folks, and. Um, what's really clear for white folks who come into those spaces is the recognition that once they let go of the generalized kind of anxiety or discomfort they have in being in a space that might look or feel different than usual, it's just how powerful the, the experience is that they're able to have. But more importantly, that, you know, when when an Indigenous community member comes to us and says, you know, I didn't really know why I was here. I wasn't really sure what to what was going to happen. But I had a really amazing time and I felt so comfortable and I met so many amazing people. I feel like we've done a really great job.
0: And what else have you either heard or what else have you been reflecting on uh, from that time? What, what is really sticking with you either that's um, that you're comfortable sharing from others or that you're, you're sitting with yourself?
1: One of the big takeaways was just how clear it was both for me in my body, um, but also in my kind of brain and heart space, how good it feels to to work at a different pace, Mm. at a pace that prioritizes connection, reflection, and marrying that with with action I can take outside of the room. That it felt good. And what I was really struck by in in the months that have come since is that there were a handful of folks who are in senior positions inside of settler-created philanthropic organizations who I know were really moved by the experience, by the flow, by the topic, by the concept of how we held our time together. They developed fantastic connections and deepened relationships with other folks, um, with their peers. It's been really striking to me how quickly that can disappear in the face of the the pressure that the nonprofit sector and the philanthropic sector puts back on people, or rather that we accept. You know, we accept as a norm a way of being together that is so harmful to our bodies and harmful to our relationships with one another it's harmful to our decision-making capacities and yet it's like that we can be right back into these sets of behaviors that are not nourishing that actually cause us harm and move us towards burnout and so it's been really striking to just see that like how quickly people are like oh that was a really beautiful experience I really enjoyed that I learned a lot it felt good and suddenly I'm going a mile a minute and I haven't paused, and I really wish I could go back to that time, but I can't possibly because there's so much work to do, right? Right. So it's just been interesting to notice the stories that we carry around with us about how we're supposed to be. And I just keep coming back to this idea that that if we're focusing on output, that we're missing out on creating the conditions where we can actually be nourished in our time together and not depleted our times together so that's a big reflection the other is just um i think the that it was such a unique invitation that was calling for people to show up in such a different way that there was a small number only a small number of people who who showed up who answered the call and i think i i know for sure in the days leading up to the amr i was so concerned with numbers like how many people are gonna show up? Oh my goodness, we've ordered all this catering. What, is, what are people gonna think? And my partner actually reminded me that in, in so much of the coaching work that I do with folks when I do convening work, because I talk to them about how, you know, is it really about the number of people in the room or is it about the quality of connection that people make?
2: Yeah.
1: And so he reminded me of that and I was so annoyed. I just was like, are you serious right now? Like, that's the last thing I need you to remind me about. <laughs> yeah, was just like, that's, that's the last thing on my mind. But it was enough to make me remember, oh, yeah, this is not about getting 200 or 500 people into a space. It was about the slowing down and the deepening connections. And we did that work. And so I think... Um, that at the end of the day, I actually feel even more committed to building the quality of experiences that invites people to slow down, that lets them feel that they're at it, like an intimate dinner party, that they are having an experience that is transforming how they show up in their life and how they show up in their work. And there was something really liberating about that. The circle, when I arrived in July of 2017, had a, a fairly typical nonprofit kind of setup in that it had a treasurer and a, a chair and a vice chair and you know all of those kind of titles that we all think of when we think of board of directors. The other thing they had though was an openness to really thinking and doing things differently, which is part of why I was excited to work. Uh, At the organization. And so when we got started, the the chair at the time um, was Sarah Lyons. And Sarah, Sarah and I really hit the ground running in terms of, you know, having to build our relationship fast and quick to deal with the whole myriad of things that come up when you're like you know, for her, uh, she was a new chair to the organization and I was a new ED. So we got to do a lot of our learning alongside one another about what it means to be in those particular roles. What I really appreciated was just how present she was willing to be in in a space alongside me as a strong sequamic woman with some... Desire and some impatience for doing things. You know, Sarah is really well-balanced to that energy and uh, has always been and continues to be really great at, like, asking thoughtful questions and helping think through a myriad of possibilities. The other thing that was really beautiful was how open she was to doing her own labor, of understanding what it means to be a white person in an organization that had an explicit desire toward being and becoming an indigenous-led organization. And so uh, through that experience, um, Sarah and I were able to build a, a connection because there were just such few times in my life that I had come across a white woman who was willing to do that kind of laboring for her own learning, in full recognition that it would mean a personal transformation, but also that it meant a demonstration of solidarity toward where our organization wanted to be. Um, so it was a real gift. One of the things that was really evident after about a year or so of the hustle and bustle was just how much work there there is to do. Um, and in lots of ways, Sarah and I are, are quite similar. And, you know, we kind of talked about, like, wouldn't it be nice to have, like, another set of hands in this labor alongside us? Um, and as we explored that conversation, there was a really... There were some, some parts of that conversation that became very central to the structure we have now. One was just recognizing how important it would be to demonstrate um, a shared leadership model at the chair level and that if we were going to do that what what might it look like to do it in a way that honored the fact that we wanted to be an organization in that space between indigenous and non-indigenous folks and so then we're starting to think about like well like it'd be really great to have an indigenous person in that space it might be really really great to have a different kind of energy. So as the the new board kind of came on and we had been sitting with this concept of a shared leadership model, um, along comes Tim Fox, who, if you haven't met Tim, is, first of all, he's a really tall uh, Blackfoot guy from Alberta who works at the Calgary Foundation. And who exemplifies this, like, quiet, calm, generous, and patient energy, which is not like me. And maybe even Sarah might agree, she might not agree, and not exactly like Sarah either. And so when the board came to a decision, or a conversation, and then a decision to um, ask Tim to step into that role, it was so exciting and it was also really obvious it was like oh like this makes so much sense like of course this would be a beautiful pairing to come together and so what I really love about working alongside Tim and Sarah is just um, the fact that they are both so different both in the in lived experience in professional experience and the ways in which they think about and, and conceptualize the work The other thing that's really beautiful about working with them is how similar they are in terms of their values and what matters to them. And so what matters to them is their families, um, their connection to community and their passion and their faith in the fact that change can happen and their belief that change can happen in partnership with one another. I think they both believe very much at their core that we are stronger when we work alongside one another. And, um, and it's just been a real joy getting to work with them and getting to know them. And um, yeah, I'm really excited for the, for the podcast and the opportunity to let folks hear that conver- a conversation between Sarah Lyons and Tim Fox, who are co-chairs of um, the Governing Circle. The, the fireside chat that they had was a totally candid conversation. And I think it gives a, a unique glimpse into the structure of our governance at the circle. And so I really enjoyed hearing Tim and Sarah discuss the opportunities, um, the creativity and the learning that they have come to through this time together. And um, I, I'm hoping that we can look forward to hearing more reflections in their time together as they do their co-chairing work um, with the Circle.
2: I guess my, like my journey into this relationship is um, I've, had a, I've been on the board of the Circle for a very long time mm-hmm. and had already been the chair for over a year. Um, when we made this decision as a board and with guidance from our staff to um, appoint a second chair. Um, And the reasons we did it um, were twofold. Um, The more important one was that uh, we wanted to live our governance and the way that we were taking decisions in relationship and influencing the organization and the work of the organization, um, you know, quite tangibly with the relationship and intersection that we were saying we were about as an organization. The second reason, which is much less glamorous, was that it was just frankly a lot of work being the chair of a small charity and uh, you know I felt we would do better uh, we felt we would do better by sharing that role a little bit with respect to the relationship um, you know as as we told you kind of off camera this is a fairly new relationship what is it about seven months mm. about seven months Um w- We'll find out through the course of this conversation, but I think it's going well. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, the part of why I think it's going well is because, um, for me anyways, uh, a couple things. One, it's been born out of a very authentic desire to share leadership. So no experience on my part of being something being taken away or, you know, being forced to give something up, but... It, Quite the contrary, an opportunity to move into a different space and be and learn from a new relationship. But secondly, I think um, you know I was trying to think about this last night. Uh, I think that Tim and I are doing this for the same reason, and and that is not for us, not for the board, you know, not for Chris, our executive director but for the impact of the organization. <clears throat> and I think that feels really clear for both of us. And so it's easy to, it's, we're making decisions for the same reason and from the same place. Uh, and I think w- we as people who haven't actually known each other all that long, um, <clears throat> we had this really amazing moment of kind of mutual recognition around that shared purpose the very beginning of our relationship, because we both have daughters of the same age, and we had this, for me, I I still think about it really often, this really profound conversation about as parents, you know, as parents in Canada, in this country, with daughters of the same age, what a different set of fears, expectations history's sense of the future we were living with and I think it, that gap which we identified quite organically really speaks to our shared purpose as co-chairs of the circle at, at the biggest level, it's closing that gap
3: mm-hmm. Ditto <laughs> no, I, no I think just, just to expand I think I think it's helpful for me to talk about the reasons why I got into this work in the first place and so for me two years ago that's when my my experience started in the philanthropic sector where I was tasked to sort of facilitate a change process at the Calgary Foundation and uh, literally try to shift the culture of an organization that was built on the infrastructure of a Western model similar to a lot of foundations and organizations today so Exactly what Sarah said. Um, Whenever I get into this work, it's not easy work to do because it takes an element of vulnerability. I'm often having to uh, do a lot of truth-telling in these spaces because context is needed in order to understand why reconciliation is needed in the first place, why systems need to change in the first place. If you don't have that context or that full understanding as a whole system and it's a huge challenge for the person trying to lead that change to make change happen <clears throat> so it's tough um my motivation in doing that isn't to change the system of the Calgary Foundation it's not about um like all of all of these are added bonuses uh, the increased capacity of the circle, the the support that we provide to Chris and Chris provides to us and all that kind of stuff. That's all an, all an added bonus. But for me, Deep Town, the very root of why I do this work is for that generational change um, from this Indigenous perspective. And, and I, I, I reflect back on 2017 when this whole country was getting ready to celebrate the um, birth of Confederation when we knew in the indigenous community that there was no reason for us to celebrate and that we didn't think in terms of years that the last 150 years was sort of small peanuts because we knew that our people have been here for generation upon generation upon generation. So it was a huge point of contention, and that's when this aha moment came to me, and it's like, well, you're putting, you're being put into these spaces and you're being <coughs> asked to take on these roles for a reason. I believe that in, in my core set of values is that everything happens for a reason Mm -hmm. but that um the change that i'm trying to work for is not i would be naive to think that i would see the significant change we need to see as a society or even as a calgary foundation in my lifetime but it's for these future generations and so um when we had that moment of talking about our intentions when i started when i was welcomed into the board a year ago um we had this conversation as a team, as a board member, to say, what brings you here? What's your motivation? And that's sort of where it all surfaced. And when we had that, when we discovered that connection about our children and our daughters and the difference, there's so much difference between um, Sarah's worries as a parent to her daughter compared to my worries as a parent to my daughter, just based off of our background and and our upbringing and our life experience. So there's this... There's this huge difference where I think it complements the work of, of a system that is trying to change, where you have both of these narratives and these, these perspectives. I don't feel like in the last seven months it's been a huge challenge to try to move. I'm still trying to navigate the system myself, and selfishly I wanted to become a part of the circle, the governing circle to inform the work that I'm doing at the Calgary Foundation because I saw so many parallels. And I was really like, clear about that in the beginning, and then came to, as a surprise seven months ago, where they're like, "Oh, by the way, do you want to become the co-chair?" <laughs> All of a sudden, <laughs> so it was a challenge that I accepted just because I had been doing this work for six years, and um, I really feel like it takes someone of a certain lived experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm to bring that narrative into those spaces and so that's what i'm trying to do even when we're doing uh, like tasks such as writing writing welcoming remarks or when we're trying to um write anything of that nature i'm trying to bring in well my perspective as a as an indigenous person where we come from and that, that consideration not that it's missing but I think it it enhances that balance.
2: Can I reflect on a couple of things that Tim said? So <clears throat> one of the things that I have found um, a huge learning opportunity and a huge growth opportunity um, really in being the chair of the circle at all but in particular in this co-chair model is um, the it's been so freeing to not feel like I knew everything or I knew what to do or that my interaction with other people was a kind of, um, you know, an an equal competition of ideas and views. So, you know, what I find is the the magic or the complementarity of this relationship is um, how freeing it's been for me to give myself over to the idea that that Tim, as well as Chris and others on our board, have um, know something that I don't know. You know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds so basic, but it's quite shocking how, um, as a person who works in my day job in in traditional philanthropy in Canada, how infrequently I encounter a conversation. Where I don't feel like I have the highest standing in the conversation, and i you know can go kind of compete toe to toe and say, well, we should do it this way, or this is the best way forward, or you know this is the decision, and it's been amazingly freeing, not to kind of then become passive, but to say there's something for me to just take in here with respect to. The culture of the organization, the behavior, the the way we make decisions, and what those decisions are, and so to be in a uh, frequently in a, def, a listening and deferring stance as mm. opposed to a win, you know, I got a win because mm. I what I, I I know what I'm talking about stance. Um, that's taken a lot of practice to get used to as a posture because it doesn't come up very often, for me.
3: Mm-hmm. I think it would be challenging to be a, be a part of a, a board. I, I wouldn't have entertained the thought of joining the circle if I didn't feel confident that there was some internal work that had been done for the existing board members because <coughs> it's, it's just a challenge when you're trying to drive this work as an indigenous person and you're being met with a lot of barriers and these sort of limiting questions and these limiting beliefs. There's a mental model that exists um in general about philanthropy and um you know love of humankind and all that kind of stuff which is all great but it sometimes impedes the ability to to change what you're doing because you're operating at the status quo so I, I was confident when I met Sarah and the rest of the board members that they, they had embraced uh, the beginning of a journey of change of mm-hmm. understanding um and that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to reflect in my day-to-day job at the Calgary Foundation, is to involve all of our stakeholders, as huge of a task as that is. Um, that means, you know, 15 board members, 35 staff, over 100 volunteers who make recommendations on their, our grants. Those are all our stakeholders, but to me, um, in order for the needle to shift, for change in terms of mobilizing reconciliation, they all have to be on the same level of understanding. So I, I felt like that was strong with the, with the board members on the circle. And, and now I'm feeling and I'm discovering that the, the next challenge that we have is creating, is, is guiding the work so that the signatories of the circle mm-hmm. sort of take on that responsibility. Because in some cases, I feel like we have signatories um, or members of the circle um, just, just as a, a checkbox effort. So they are members and they have signed the declaration but they're not actually doing any internal work. Whereas when I came on board at the Calgary Foundation and I discovered that we are members and we are signatories and so I started asking some truth, asking questions, well what does that mean for you? What have you done? and I quickly learned that we haven't really done anything and so trying to um yeah change shift that in in my internal workspace so I think it's happening I think it's happening uh at the the board level which is makes this work less I feel like indigenous or non-indigenous board members when I when I'm in that space I'm in the space of peers Because each foundation, community foundations of Canada, across the country, gathers peers. Every year they gather peers in grants and peers in communication. And it's hard for me to kind of find where I fit in sort of those peer gatherings. When I come to the Circle Board, I feel like I'm working with an informal group of peers. Or even in spaces like this, uh, I'm even... um, grappling with the thoughts of sort of formalizing that in a sense that at the next cfc how can we create sort of a peer gathering of folks who are working for systems change and those indigenous folks who are working in the philanthropy and non-indigenous folks so mm.
2: yeah yeah what i heard in what you said is a kind of a <laughs> shift in um the the culture of I think the circle itself in in the sense that i mean no one ever set out to become a kind of escape valve for having to do things because we could kind of defer our check boxes over here no one you know and that was never the case it was never the intention but i think the past two to three years have seen a um this amazing accumulation of of i would call it courage probably in the board and in the staff to not be afraid to ask more of our members um, and not not be a place where it's kind of easy to feel like we're learning uh, we're learning and we're engaged but rather the circle as an organization as a A platform or a nudge to action and to change and that's you know I don't think we've written that down anywhere but I think it's really clear in the mindsets of the whole board Um, and I I wonder I think that that interplay on our board between indigenous and non-indigenous is a bit mutually empowering I hope Mm -hmm. I feel that way you know I feel like um, I've been given I mean I've been given a lot of power to to name things, to encourage my my peers mm-hmm. to problematize the past and, and, and the present. And I I don't actually have a sense of how that what that experience of kind of mutual power giving is for, for the folks on the board. And on the staff who are indigenous, but I'm making an assumption that it's kind of the same.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I feel like coming in to the board at the time that I have been in the short time that I have been, I see that more so now where I'm coming in sort of unapologetically, and I'm like, I see, I see that existing, and probably maybe that's because of the leadership of Chris and how she's impacted this shift in how the the. <clears throat> The board members before the new board members came on existed or believed that it was a gentle nudge for the charitable sector to me to me i'm not seeing that gentle nudge i'm coming in and i'm, I'm new and i'm just like and i'm ready for change and i'm like forget the gentle nudge let's like just get to the work and so i'm <clears throat> I, I i'm i guess that's an advantage being so new and not really knowing the history because the circle's been around for 10 years and mind you I've only been really engaged in my knowledge capacity of the circle in the last two and then really fully in this last year so it excites me when I see us moving in a progressive way and having all these progressive conversations that are very you know uncomfortable for a lot of people that we work with in the sector but um, I see it as very very brave. I don't have any th- anything else to compare mm. it to. I don't have that history, that knowledge history that Sarah has. Yeah. So I'm just well,
2: like... Yeah. I mean, I, as much as I want to give credit to us as a board and, and especially, I think, to Chris as a leader, probably worth acknowledging, too, that, that the, the sands of time has all, have also unfolded, too, and the context that we're working in as an organization... I mean, mm-hmm. 10 years is a long time in the Canadian conversation about yeah. reconciliation, white supremacy. The, you know, I, I really, I mean, I have been in the philanthropy sector for more than 10 years. It's hard for me to imagine coming to conferences um, organized by the circle, but also organized by the mainstream organizations like PFC mm-hmm. or CEGN. and... Um, where we would be talking quite loosely about settlers and supremacy and whiteness, and I mean that has all emerged, both because of the circle and many others, but also around the circle and many others. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's also the moment we're in, which mm-hmm. is an opportunity.
3: Absolutely, I feel like across the board in this country, like the, this conversation surfacing in different ways. It's surfacing with the release of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report. It's surfacing in 2015 when the TRC calls to action were released. It's surfacing in many ways. It's surfacing in the media with land protectors and all this kind of stuff. And my colleagues at the Calgary Foundation are noticing this. What I feel like is happening as well, and, and sort of the unique approach that the circle is um, handling all of this in is they're being very brave. we are being very brave in um, actioning Some and and making space for this difficult conversation to happen, making space to be very honest and authentic in a very respectful way. When we talk about whiteness and white supremacy, it's not with the intention to make anyone feel guilty or to anger anyone. It's it's, it's just the truth. And sometimes I believe historically people are scared of that truth and what that means for change. (laughs) In my experience in the last six years, you take words like decolonization and when you want to change a system... And you have maybe um, a settler colleague or someone, and they they see that their perception of decolonization is Indigenous people and perspectives taking over, like totally. When all I'm trying to do is create some balance, and I feel like the circle is has that same approach, but they're being very brave and they're being very bold about Mm -hmm. that approach, and you'll notice that in how we communicate at conferences like this, and how, and it's building my own knowledge capacity it's building my own capacity my own toolbox of um this knowledge system because ultimately at the carrier foundation they have been taught to practice philanthropy in one way based on one paradigm of thought and practice whereas i'm getting more confident with the work of the circle and chris and and sarah and others um to, to incorporate other language that informs this other knowledge system that we're creating this indigenous paradigm of knowledge and practice um, I feel like like Sarah I feel like Sarah is so <clears throat> I don't even know if you realize this but when you're standing there as a Caucasian woman and when you're standing in the front, in front of a, a group of your peers in in this settler created philanthropic space and when you're confidence in saying you know what I'm a settler and this is this makes me uncomfortable we have to lean into this and you're sort of to me breaking down those barriers I really wish that more of my colleagues at the foundation and in the sector would were as confident to, to openly talk about that mm-hmm. in the way that, that you do so that's the beauty of having someone like Sarah as well um, surface some of that language like it's so needed this this perspective as much mm-hmm. as an indigenous perspective is needed
2: yeah well not to not to spill our internal secrets but that's an explicit conversation between chris and i around that role for me and one that i've you know we've we've kind of built up over time um you know chris and i have been working together for almost two years now and i think uh you know i think over that two years together she has increasingly nudged me into that space but i think i wanted it too and you know that's that's in some ways the beauty of privilege and you know being where I am in my own career and my own life is um, I don't I'm not really very scared (laughs) you know I may be the right person for that job at the moment because I I have uh, I I don't feel a sense of vulnerability in taking on that role do I feel um, very nervous about it yes you know you and I had a a chat a really important to me chat a few weeks ago two weeks ago um, the evening before I was on the kind of main stage at the Community Foundations of Canada conference with Chris and Edgar Villanueva and I was very much there and Chris and I had talked about that explicitly to to kind of intermediate between the Edgar's speech that he was going to make and Chris's comments and the predominantly white audience and and play that role that you just described. And I was, um, I think I said to you, and I do a lot of public speaking, I am more nervous about this than I have been for something in a long time. And I searched my soul a bit for why. It wasn't the size of the room. It wasn't who was in the room. It was, well, two things. One, I really cared about doing it well. You know, I cared about the impact um, which shouldn't be sound anomaly like an anomaly but I like I really cared in my heart And second I felt a responsibility um, to kind of um, give this opportunity that I have been given and taken to to take put myself out there a little bit and do it well. Um, so I think that's you know we're in this really interesting um, you know, Along with the rest of the board and the staff, you know, there's this great dynamic that I find between you and I, Tim and Chris. Um, I think we all have some similar ideas. Um, You know, we're all kind of around the same age. Like it's an interesting Mm -hmm. three way relationship in terms of how long we've been on this earth, Mm -hmm. what we think is important. Um, And it does feel a little bit. Um, a little bit magical sometimes. That being said, I do... um, You know, we've talked a lot about the bravery and the um, moving from kind of the nudge to the the push, maybe. Um, We don't quite have the results yet, right? Like, I I think before we get too self-congratulatory, I'll be curious to see what change in the things we directly influence... Um, which is the kind of philanthropic sector and the interplay between that and and Indigenous leaders, communities, and and charities, you know, what what will the results be? Because as much as I think we are no longer a, a place, an organization that you can kind of sign up for to tick a box, I also don't think that we have I can't point to an enormous amount of result uh, yet. Most of it would be at the individual level, I think, not mm-hmm. at the organizational level. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, people have not given away portions of their assets to Indigenous-led trusts. Mm-hmm. People have not substantially increased their grant-making and their regular frameworks to Indigenous-led charities. Things have happened, but it has not been revolutionary.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to to hear you talk about that because it's it's a different perspective of how I see the influence that I'm hoping to bring into the circle. So when I came onto the circle, I felt like there was still a phase of evolution that was happening even at the 10-year mark, would you agree? Totally. So when I came on board, simple things like planning documents for how we plan as a board... To me, I was like, "Well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about making it visual?" So in Manitoulin Island, when I was sitting with Chris and Shereen, and they presented this document to me, which we, we then presented to the governing circle, the rest of the board, on the seasonal planning, and I, and so we're we're still playing with this. But to me, my focus is on sort of increasing is parallel paralleling indigenous ways of practice to inform the work of the circle, which is what I'm doing at the the Calgary Foundation. So. Um, I like that Sarah is looking at the sector change <laughs> because I'm, I'm definitely about systems. Like it's, it's not enough to reach out to an indigenous community or indigenous um, um, organization with the mindset of how can we increase your capacity? Maybe that's needed, um, but that's the historical approach. I'm more interested in asking the systems, sure, but how are you changing as well? Which is the same question in the mind frame that I'm that I'm approaching my role at the circle. Well, how are we shifting? How how are we doing things differently? And how are how is that how is that um bay, paying respect to an oral tradition and an oral way of living and being? And it, it is surfacing in different ways, but I think there's more that we could be doing once those things are solidified and I feel like we're at that place, which I'm not sure I don't have a timeline of when that's gonna happen, but uh, it could turn into a best practice that I'm trying to like mobilize at the Calgary Foundation. That's why I say I joined it very selfishly to uh, help help me create some change and how we plan at the foundation, how we strategize. Do we strategize? You know, so
2: yeah, and and I'm a I'm super appreciative of all that kind of inside the organization work, and I think it reflects you know some of the biggest kind of pieces of wisdom or learning that I've gotten from Chris and I'll speak to a story Um, I had a phone call with Chris the evening of the Colton Bushy decision and what I called her up seeking was an answer to what organizations like my own CFC or foundations in Canada you know should do like I, I literally was like I'm going to get the answer. Call you up. And, yeah, like, your face says it all. You're like, you're wild. Well, that was Chris's reaction, too. But she didn't, make, I couldn't see that face because we were on the phone. So she was like, yeah. And she kind of started going around it. And finally I was like, you're not going to give me the answer, are you? And she's like, no, definitely not. And I was like, oh, right, okay. you know." And so she's created this context for no easy button which is amazing and i think is the context between the internal work that you've just described but also the the kind of yes you need an answer but i'm not going to give it to you easy like that's that's the kind of the the, mat, the alchemy that will lead to change but uh, that's been It's funny how I can be years into this work, this organization, and even working with this person, and I am still consistently catching myself being like, I'm going to, a couple things, you know, I'm either going to get the answer from Chris and she'll tell me what to do instead of recognizing that that's my work. Um, Or um, even having said that, you know, Chris and I have talked explicitly about my role in kind of being a a white face of this work and a call to action f- for for white people, I still sometimes erase myself from the from from that work you know so I will still sometimes go into circle gatherings thinking that my role is to sit at the back and not take up too much space and certainly not not be um, at the front of the room. Uh, so it's like it's it's the unlearning is, exceptionally long mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. well it is uh, it is about time so
2: um, I think the unlearning is exceptionally long so it's a good close but actually <laughs>
1: invite
0: you to make a, a final reflection each, and then we'll head to the plenary because we don't want to miss summer which is our plenary
3: mm-hmm. oh no pressure's on me <laughs> for final comments um I think like like any things that I that I en- enter into, <clears throat> my whole intention is to be a continuous learner. Even as a person who's um, trying to lead some change, I don't. I'm learning along the way, and that's what I. That's the belief. That's the. Those are the seeds that I tried to plant in my colleagues at the Calgary Foundation, that there is no leader in this work. It's a collective leadership. It's a collective responsibility. Circle practice, traditionally, places no titles or roles on people. It provides a space for the voiceless to have a voice. It provides room for different perspectives. If you were to place an object in the center of a circle, and Sarah was on one side, and I was on one side, and she described what she saw, it's going to be different from my perspective, it doesn't mean she's right, if I described what I saw, and she described what she saw, and you guys described it, you, collectively, we would sort of create the formation of the circle, you know, of a whole, I always think about that when I think about the circle work, that it's a collective responsibility, we're constantly going to be learning. Um, and that's what excites me about this. And, and that's what I want to inspire other people who are trying to mobilize reconciliation that we don't know what we're doing. It's okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Let's make the mistakes together, um, work through them, but provide space for many perspectives, mm-hmm. especially non-Indigenous perspectives in this work. You, you also have responsibility in this. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to kind of say, well, no, it's your work. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah.
2: But just add that to say, you know, I spent um, kind of 10 years with some engagement as a person working in philanthropy in this conversation about reconciliation. And I got told so many times that the first step, the most important thing, the basis of everything was relationship. But if I'm honest with myself um, and with the whole world, it was probably only like three years ago that I actually really understood the value and importance and took the steps to really be in relationship and not transactional relationship. And so, um, I think that you know our relationship, which of course has lots of conference calls and Google Docs and stuff, but also involves spending time together in meals, and you know we like to hit the clubs from time to time, <laughs> is crucial because it creates the space to be vulnerable together, to learn together, and I, like I'm like i saying such an obvious thing but um, it's a lot easier to talk about and name as it's so important, it's the first thing, it's the basis of everything. Um, it's actually been harder, it took a long time for me to really get there and now that I'm there I'm like right, this is why people said that for a,
0: a decade. <laughs> <laughs> heartfelt thank you to chris tim and sarah for sharing their wisdom reflections and stories it's been such a privilege to work with them on bringing this episode to life thank you as well to shireen at the circle and to my colleague kelsey at ckx for your support on this episode as well this podcast has been made in partnership with the circle turn it over to Chris to share the ways in which you can continue to follow, engage in, and support their work.
1: The fastest way to connect with us is actually to follow The Circle on Twitter at Circle Canada, and you can find me on Twitter as well as Shereen Munchi. And that's a great way to stay up to date with the work that we're doing. Uh, One of the things about being a tiny but mighty team is that Twitter actually gives us an ability to communicate to our members and to our community in a way that is far more responsive and faster. And it's less, you know, it's less of a headache to do that work. So that's the best way to get in touch with us.
0: ckx questions is a podcast from ckx community knowledge exchange the intro and outro music for ckx questions is the song good vibes from broken parts's self-titled album be sure to check out the link in the show notes to support their amazing work until next time take care and let's take care of each other